0: And it's really simple things, oftentimes, that give us the most profound sense of joy.
1: You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and hosting with me, once again, the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, Rudy Salo. And this episode, we are talking about joy. Our guest is theology professor at Yale University, Dr. Angela Gorel. I met Angela years ago through a mutual friend. And I always enjoyed talking with Angela. Her interests uh, overlapped with mine a bit in philosophy, this notion of what is the meaning of life. And she came to that question with a theological lens. And when I saw that she had written a book, The Gravity of Joy, I reached out and asked if she would come on the show to talk about it. And she said yes. Now, when I read her book, I was thinking that I was going to get some objective meaning, some objective understanding. I was looking for a definition of joy. And as I was reading it, I got so much more. I want to say that it is an important book. I read it in one sitting. I even cried a bit as I was reading it. Because Angela in this book talks about her journey to understanding joy that started with an academic interest, but then became extremely Personal, Because as she was working on this idea of what is joy, she was going through a profound suffering, a profound grieving process in her own life. And so this book is about that, about the collision of this idea with the reality of what she was going through and how she worked through these two things. It's an existential trek. And it's really a beautiful book. And I thank Angela so much for writing it, for talking about it, and for being on the show. Before we get started, I just want to thank the listeners. Thank you for the reviews. If you haven't yet, please rate and review the show. And if you are interested in more about this particular episode, I've linked Angela's website to the show notes. And if you would like to contribute to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash in the details. Okay, now let's talk joy. Your work, The Gravity of Joy, by the way, that's a fantastic title. Because of the autobiographical nature of it, in addition to being part journalistic, there's some academic stuff in here about defining joy. But I am just curious, for The Gravity of Joy, how was this a different writing project for you than other writing projects. Like I know for me, when I'm working on a philosophy paper, I have to organize the research, come up with the thesis. I'm sure you completely understand that process, but this would have been a radically different process. Did it hit you all at once? This is something I want to write about. Did you, sometimes I know with writing, it almost feels like, I'm just the vessel for an idea, like it's just coming through. I'm wondering what was writing The Gravity of Joy like for you?
0: It was summer 2018 and I had just become, I had just been working as um, like hanging out on Wednesday nights with women at a prison, leading a Bible study. That was beginning to do something in me that really basically for a year and a half after everything happened in my family, I was experiencing everything from profound grief to deep anger, to fear at losing other people that I loved. Um, I became very, very fearful of death. I began you know, saving every voicemail, <laughs> every piece of, every card people sent me. It was just wild. And so I just found myself experiencing grief in every way possible. And then I started hanging out with these women on Wednesday nights at a prison. And I was, uh, I was uh, with the women on suicide watch at the prison. And also I discovered even just over the course of a few weeks that that the majority of the women that were coming on to the Bible study on Wednesday nights were addicted to some sort of substance before they came to the prison. Um, and many of them were in prison for some sort of substance, um, usually heroin or crack. So I began to realize pretty quickly into to volunteering at the prison on Wednesday nights that these women were beginning to Connect with—I mean—they were opening me up to talking about stuff that had happened in my family, the suicide of Dustin, my cousin's husband, um, my own, my dad's use of opioids for opiates, opioids for the last 12 years of his life—and they were helping me to begin to really talk about these things in a meaningful way. In the sense that they, I was able to talk about them and just be angry and be sad and express things. And for that whole year and a half, I was supposed to be researching joy. And I was joining all the conversations. I was reading other people's work on joy, even when I didn't want to. And it felt absurd. It felt so strange to be studying joy while in the midst of just profound grief. And I couldn't write about it. I I went to Yale really anticipating, I'm going to write about joy. I'm going to write a book on joy, probably. And I began constructing that outline in the first few months, but then I just let it go. And for a good year and something, never thought about writing myself about it. And then what happened was one of my friends, Willie Jennings, who's also a professor at Yale Divinity School, gave this lecture. And he said, we can make pain productive without glorifying or justifying suffering. And I left his lecture and I literally just thought to myself and for myself, I am going to make my pain productive. I'm going to try to make some sort of sense of the suffering that my family and I have experienced. And so I began writing the book more as a journal (laughs) to myself and just writing stories and sharing what had happened and reflecting. And as I did that, I began to integrate research. As I did that, I started to realize a few months in that there might be a book here.
1: I wanted to ask you, this is... Kind of this is more of an academic question, but you know, there's a lot of existential themes here that are in your work. The questions about despair, death contemplation. And it struck me that in reading about the notion of joy, I'm I'm a little embarrassed to ask, but is that a theological question? Like is that because I'm realizing, oh wow, in all of my studies in philosophy, we've talked about these themes, but I don't think we've talked about happiness. I don't think joy has ever been part of it. Is joy an inherently theological theme? So Adam Potke
0: is, he wrote a book called The Story of Joy, and he is trained as someone who studies literature. So he reviewed this sort of etymology around joy, and it's been around a lot longer than happiness in his study of it. But I think that basically over the last couple of centuries that happiness took over. Um, But happiness tends to be a way that we described, I mean, in his historical work on it, a way that we describe a calculus of, of materials. So we kind of look around us and we assess how much we have and are we happy? That's how it was started to be used. Um, But yes, I I would say that joy from both, I mean, he traces it back to Shakespeare and some others, but definitely I think that it's a theological. And I was, as I was studying it at Yale, I was thinking about it as a theologian. You know, how historically have people who studied God talked about, written about, Joy and its experience, where does it come from? How do we cultivate it? And so as I wrote about it, even though we had people joining the Joy Project at Yale from all different disciplines, I think we had 239 scholars from over 140 institutions that were a part of the project, and that wrote about joy from all different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, uh, I think joy from a biblical standpoint, which is why theolog- like theologians have written about it so much, joy shows up a lot in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament.
1: I know, I'm absolutely loving these definitions. I see joy as the counter-agent of despair. Joy often follows gratitude. Hope and joy keep despair at bay. I just, uh, there was another one. I'm trying to find a bit. Uh, oh, this is something I really love. Joy is an experience of connectingness to others, to God and to meaning that both roots us and transcends us. So it is both orienting and disorienting. As I was reading that, I was trying to think of the last time I experienced that because I know exactly what you're talking about here and you're right. It is different than happiness. I love that. It's both orienting and disorienting. From your work, is it possible for somebody to understand the concept of joy without the theological component, or do you think that that is essential?
0: I think it's possible to understand it because I think everyone's experienced it. Joy is one of those things that if I ask you to define it, most people are going to have a hard time defining it that haven't been a part of a project really thinking deeply about it. But if I asked you about a time that you felt joy, you could think about it and tell me. Yeah. Um, Most people, Could recall an an experience of joy in their life. And so then they could, and then from that story, they would begin to see, oh, I think that this is what joy is like. And usually when people recall experiences of joy, they begin to realize just by the story that they told how it is more profound than most other positive emotions, that it's sobering in a way that positive emotions generally aren't. And that it has this strange, mysterious capacity to be felt in the midst of suffering, which is why it can be a companion in the midst of suffering and a, and a powerful counteragent to despair, is because you don't, joy I say in the book is not naive. It's not, you know, the moments that I experienced joy with my family, after my family member's deaths, and in remembering them, and in the, you know, the months that followed, it's not like I forgot that these things had happened or I put that even aside, but it's that somehow mysteriously, it was actually, I was able to think, okay, yes, this happened. Um, Yes, my dad is no longer, you know, here with me. But at the same time, I was able to find joy in a particular feeling or memory related to him. And the same for Dustin and the same
1: for, my nephew, Mason. Yeah, I was thinking just so that anybody who, let's say, is not of a particular faith, that there's still so much to gain from this kind of a discussion.
2: I'm taking everything in. Uh, in particular, if I ask you a question about what actually brought you real joy... For a second there, I, I, like I kind of stepped into the shoes of somebody. She was asking that question, and I was I was actually answering that question. So if I looked pensive or contemplative,
1: I'm just going to assume you thought about podcasting with me, and I'll just say thank you. Or no, and well, you're welcome. That is,
2: <laughs> I'll say you're welcome. In in a, in, a, in a in a way, in a funny way, you're right because oh. I I, f- I feel like we do this. One of the reasons why we do this, one of the reasons why we do produce this podcast is obviously you're a professor and you want to teach your students and you want to give them a fun new, um, you know, 2020 version of trying to grasp philosophical concepts and use them in everyday life. What you're trying to do is help people. And so I always connect the only, the only thing I could connect to like true joy is when I'm helping people. So yes, the answer to your question is doing this podcast does bring me joy because <laughs> I do feel like we're helping people. So so there you go.
1: How about that? Well, I, um, I do, let's see, to get into some of the theology, something that struck me was that you're mentioning of the book of Job and that I wanted to know what your understanding of it was. So maybe for, for our listeners, if they're not familiar with the book of Job, I've always been intrigued by the book of Job, this idea of everything being taken away. Because I was thinking maybe this is an explanation of when people were pondering, how do you explain somebody who's living well and they suffer? How How is that explained? And so the book of Job seemed to me as a way to offer some sort of peace and explanation. So I would love to know what your take is on that. So scholars have debated for
0: centuries what Job means. (laughs) So I definitely will be coming at this from a personal um, wrestling with it. The thing for me, the reason why I think the Bible is fascinating among so many other books that we all read is that there are numerous stories in it that people have wrestled with for centuries, trying to make sense of life. I love the Bible because for me, it is refreshing to see a bunch of people who are stumbling through life trying to make sense of it, and wondering, hey, God, are you there? And is there a bigger story being told here? Is there something more? For me, that's at the heart of the stories in the Bible. And the story of Job, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest people debate that in the Hebrew scriptures, and thus in the entire Bible, one of the oldest stories, yeah, is of this person who loses everything, and you're and and he's crying out to god and i note it in the book that there's this moment when he's asking god basically begging god to help him pleading you know for god to make sense of things and god starts telling job about all the things that god has done and basically he says you know do you know about this do you know about that and i say in the book "Do, do you know where the mountain goats give birth because god is i mean basically essentially saying i know all these things and helping Job, there's a sense that God's ways are higher than Job's ways, that there's a, there's something that God maybe has access to or knows that Job doesn't. But it's almost as if I can imagine Job looking at God and being like, yeah, I get it. I know you know more than me. That's why I'm coming to you. <laughs> and so for me, the, the story of Job really is hard to make sense of on its own. For me, it's the entirety of scriptures Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament that helps me to make sense of it personally. On its own, standing alone, it's about a guy who's wrestling with suffering in his own life and trying to make sense of it, who cries out to God. So I relate to Job just on that. Like, I've suffered. I know what it is to cry out to God and to try to understand it. When I look at it in the scope of the entire Bible, what I see that really is interesting to me is uh, the great Dr. James Colton. He says that the Bible is not about why suffering happens, it's about God's response to suffering. What does God do in light of suffering? To me, that's a helpful thing. And so I try to spend my life as Angela Gorel trying to not ask like, why is suffering happening? But where is God in the midst of suffering? And then the other thing that's really helpful to me is something that Mike Petra, one of my friends said, to me once casually, <laughs> but he has a you know doctorate in mythology. But he says that the only answer to theodicy is theophany, that the only answer to suffering is the, the very presence or the manifestation of God. And I think that that's, to me, what the Bible suggests, and I can live with that.
2: What are your thoughts about when you are suffering, when things do go really tough, or there's been some deaths, or when you're really down on your luck, that that is the time where you tend to pray to God, or that's when you turn to God, or you you really ask for help at that time. But when things are going well, let's say you're filled with joy, maybe you forget about God. I'm not naming names, but let's say, you know, I suffered from that and I feel some guilt about that. I'm, I'm just curious, is that out of the norm or, or is that kind of, you know, just a normal part of the human experience that you found as a theologian?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it is a normal part of the human experience. I think part of what I realized in this book in writing it though is that just because when we're experiencing joy um, and we're rejoicing over something that can be in response to god's goodness even if we're not intentionally being like god i thank you for this or rejoice over this in recognition of and like your presence or something like that i think that joy is because joy is god because joy is like what we get from participating in the joy of god that to express joy is to be in god's presence it is to To give ourselves over to it is, you know, to be connected with God, whether we're being really intentional about it or not. I think that's the gift of joy.
2: So every time Gwen says, thank you to me, she's really... Tapping into, she's really she's being godlike there because there's so much joy. Look at her face. Look how much joy there is on her face right now. So that's just what you're saying is without her thanking God when she's thanking me, she's really you know dealing in a godlike kind of thing. Is kind of like on. an oracle. That's what you're saying. I'm
1: more like an oracle. Yeah, kind of, yeah. You know? Yeah. But without that's the what cookies, I'm, I'm like the Matrix.
2: <laughs> right. Right. So you're being, you know, you're praising God whenever you say thank you.
1: <laughs> I um, you know, this was something that. I mean, I'm still really thinking about your writing process and going through this. Something that I thought was really special about your book is that you go through this autobiographical stuff, you explain the pain and then the particular deaths, especially with suicide, especially with opioids. You are not only talking about this work in prisons, but then you also look at what are some of the causal factors for somebody to turn to suicidal thoughts and to addiction. And I noticed that you talked about social media. There's a great line in here, since authenticity is the good life life cannot be good if you cannot be authentically yourself. And I thought that that was such an insightful line because yeah, authenticity is part of the good life. It's impossible to say, I am enjoying my life. I'm living life well. If we are just, I mean, everybody's got masks, but at the end of the day, at least with yourself, at least with somebody you're close to, that mask is removed. But maybe we don't know when to take that mask off. Maybe we're afraid. There's all sorts of literature about people becoming more and more distant or even afraid to interact because all they have is the mask that social media is perpetuating. But that that is part of what causes a crisis of identity, as you call, that leads to loneliness, that leads to despair. I was wondering if you could talk more about the research on that.
0: So first, i I'm yeah, I, I do talk in the book about the suicide of a college student named Madison Halloran, and a, and a book has been written about her life. And I was able to interview her sister for the book. And what's interesting, and so this is where I start talking about social media, is that Madison, right, you know, just, just days before her death, posts pictures of herself looking very genuinely happy. And yet she was telling her family and some of her closest friends that she was not feeling right like something didn't feel right. And I think that there was a sense among some people who, like the people who loved her the most, that she wasn't able to live into who she felt like she could be or should be, um, or that she couldn't, like, you know, for example, give up running, even though it wasn't bringing her joy anymore, that to give that up would be to fail the people who had brought her to uh, the University of Pennsylvania to run there and all these sorts of things. And so she began to feel that, she had to choose between doing what other people or something. It's hard, you know, it's hard. To, it's all conjecture, really, because Maddie's not here to tell us. But there seems to be, um, in the people who knew her best, some sort of, there was some sort of disconnect between who she felt like she really was and what she was having to present to the world. And I think many college students, many young people today, especially between ages of 18 to 25, feel that pressure. Donna Freitas has written about this in The Happiness Effect, her book, where she went to 13 college campuses and she asked college students about their experiences with social media. And she found over and over again, college students saying things like, I feel like I have to post that I'm happy all the time. I feel like I have to be successful all the time online. I don't, I feel like nobody, I can't share about my mistakes or my failures. And so we're seeing in the research that young people do feel a tremendous amount of pressure to present a certain self online that's a brand. you know, A brand that's really successful and happy and connected and that will hopefully get them visibility and notoriety. And the more that they do that, In the happiness effect, she really says that the more that they tell the world, I'm really happy, the more that they, that can actually cause great distress because young people don't feel as happy as they're telling everyone they are. So it feels inauthentic and they don't feel as happy as everyone else who's posting either. And so it's this cycle that's causing tremendous mental distress among young people. And so it's really important. I feel like one one of the most important things that we can do is to pull back the curtain on social media. And to help especially young people, 18 to 25 year olds to realize everyone's feeling this way. Everyone's experiencing the happiness effect. We all feel a tremendous pre- pre- you know, pressure to tell the world how successful and happy we are. Just so, to promote ourselves constantly online. And then to talk about some things that mitigate that and help with it as well is important.
2: The exact chapter in your book that you're outlining right now is where I, I marked, a lot of your books spoke to me, but, but this particular chapter spoke to me a lot in light of our our very recent conversation, Gwen, with Aaron about uh, social media and the social dilemma. Angela, have you seen that film? And, and I'm really curious about, especially with what you wrote in your book and what you've cited from your, um, from your other book, Always On, you're identifying these issues. What were, what were your responses to the social dilemma? And what do you personally think? What's the answer? Should there be government regulation? Should clearly young people are maybe being damaged by by social media or their exposure to it, or it's, it's having certain effects that perhaps we won't even know uh, until we're 20, 30 years into the future. And we could look back uh, as, you know, we as a society are, are learning the ins and outs of social media and the effects of it. But I'm, I'm really curious about how did you react after watching the social dilemma and what, what insights do you have after seeing that?
0: Yeah, um, to me, I wasn't surprised by anything that was said on, on The Social Dilemma. Chapter three of Always On is really dedicated to, in uh, my book, is really, it says a lot of the things that they talked about there. Because people um, like Sean Parker, who helped develop the like button, had come out earlier. He's written articles. he shared a lot. Several of those guys have been publicly speaking out about those. Opinions for multiple years, and so people who followed their work closely would have already, you know, like myself, because I was writing a book about media, I knew what they were like, what they were going to say. And I was the one thing that I think really surprised me, though, at the end that they talked about more and more was just how the algorithms were being fine-tuned more and more on social media to actually create alternate realities for every person. So whereas instead of, uh, like, because, you know, we are always talking about how groupthink happens online, but basically the fact that they are fine-tuning it so much that actually the news that I receive is different than the news my mom receives versus who my friend receives in Kentucky or this or that, that based on what we like, we literally are presented different, realities about what's going on in the United States and around the world. That to me, I had not really thought about it that way, or they hadn't, I hadn't read them explicitly like talking about how it was kind of creating a different world. So because, you know, you find yourself in political conversations or other types of conversations, you're just like, how is like this person not getting, how are they not seeing it like this? How are they not mm-hmm. talking about climate change in this way? Mm-hmm. And it's because they're literally not seeing the same things that you're seeing. That was really intriguing to me. Um, I do want to say though, that I think there is hope and um, a couple things that me really hopeful is one, that there's a lot of research that supports the way we use new new media, especially social media, can cultivate connection and help us to feel more compassion and empathy for other people. And there are things that we can do. um, So basically, the more we participate online, the better it is for our mental health so instead of getting online and passively when we when we get online and passively scroll for boundless sets of time through a, a bunch of data and we never reply in a conversation we never post ourselves share what's happening in our lives you know share a story the more likely it is that we're gonna feel anxious or depressed or lonely when we're in social media spaces. The more we participate in conversations, um, celebrate with people who are celebrating, replying to people, messaging to people, sharing what's happening in our life, the more we spend our time in active use of social media, the better, the more likely it is going to help us to feel connected to other people to help us to learn and to help us to feel more loved and like we're loving better. So there's actually a way of using it that can mitigate mental distress or increase love and connection.
2: And I agree with that. The the times when when I get into some funny rants on Facebook with some old high school friends or other people, I get joy from that because uh, I, I can tell people think I'm super funny and it's, the cat's out of the bag that I'm this hilarious person. I get no laughter from uh-huh. that. Okay, that's fine. However, however the, the double-edged sword there is there's a lot of haters online, right? There are people that live to just talk trash to people. They feel protected in their little tech bubble in their home or in their little cellar or wherever they are, and they, they'll just say nasty things online. Um, obviously, for that individual, you know, they're just a bad person. I'd like to just say, oh, well, that's just a few bad apples, but I mean, there's just tons of haters out there, and you could see on The Social Dilemma, you know, one of the most memorable scenes is when the girl posts her picture, and she she starts getting nasty comments about her ears, nasty comments about her face, nasty comments about suicide. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I could also see how it's also a window into, you know, really weak bullies to feel protected to say terrible things. And so... I guess I don't have a fix for it. Like, I, I really don't. Like, do we not allow kids under the age of 18 to have any social media? I don't know what the fix is. I'm curious. You being who you are and and really educated and writing about this and truly knowing about it, do you have any ideas about which direction parents like me with very young children and Gwen and other people, how we should expose our children to social media in a positive way, knowing what we know now? like I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I oftentimes when I'm talking to groups of parents, I compare social media to cars. When you are introducing your child to driving a car, you do it in a very specific way. So you decide a time, an age when you're going to introduce them to driving. And for some people, it's 14 in a parking lot or 15. Others, like I'm actually going to wait till right on the dot 16, you know, or whatever. And I remember when I learned to drive, my mom took me to a parking lot and she was in the driver's seat and I walked her and she said, this is where you put your hands on the wheel. This is how you look in the mirror. You know, she showed me what to do. And then we switched places. And it was in a relatively like, you know, safe, like empty parking lot. And then she watched me try out all the things that she had just taught me. And then when I started driving on my own, she would let me have the car for particular amounts of time. And she would ask me when I got back, how did it go? You know, how like everything was okay, you know? Well, and even... So even after that, I should say, even after the parking lot, she rode with me a lot, right? You have your parent next to you, and they ride with you, and they you they make sure that you can go through a four-way stop, you can get on a freeway, you can do this or that, and there's this incremental trust that's developed between a parent and a child around this technology, a car, and then eventually they give you the keys and then let you go off, and they you know, and and then eventually. They ask you about it less and less frequently because they begin to trust you and realize that you've got this, you understand this, you know. I think social media has to be like that. I think we start with one platform that you feel like, you know, just like the empty parking lot that um, it starts with a lot of, let me show you how this works or let me find someone who I trust to show you how this works. I'm going to survey it. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to make sure that you you know what I mean?
2: I love that. It's super helpful. I think I'm probably going to use that analogy on a going forward basis, except for a couple things really quick. We as parents know that it's not just us out there policing our children. There are actual police that, you know, and I know police like to see, like to, in particular, go after younger drivers, people that look particularly young, they will, they won't give them the same breaks as older people, they'll give them tickets. So me as a parent, I know I'm going to feel more comfortable because we have the police out there. So in the social media world, who's the policeman who's going to be watching out for our children? And should there be? And, and, and should we just kind of know that, hey, well, unlike driving That's a the
0: car. Thing. Yeah, I here's mean, the I, thing. Sure. In an ideal world, there are multiple people who care about your child. It's not just you. And so they have a mentor, they have teachers, they have a, you know, a high school counselor. Maybe they, have, maybe they go to church and, or a mosque or the synagogue and they have a religious leader. And all of these people, ideally, we become adults who on a regular basis ask young people about their social media experiences. If we ask them a question like, how's it going at home? They might say like, oh, everything's fine. You could ask them a better question, though. Do you feel safe at home? We can do the same thing about, you know, we ask them about their friendships, like, hey, do you, have friend, you know, how's how's the friend life going? And then you can ask them a question like, do you feel like if you were in a hard situation that you have someone at school that you could tell about it to really specific questions that say, hey, I just want to check in on you. You know, we need to do the same thing about. Just like we ask questions about um, young people's physical settings, their experiences there, we have to ask them about their digital experience. Hey, have you ever felt sad when you've been online? Why, what happened? Have you ever gotten really angry online? You know, in a digital space, like what, what, what did you do about it? Have you ever felt shamed or bullied online by some of your friends? Or do you feel connected with other people online? Stuff like that. And we have to get more and more adults who are invested in each child asking on a regular basis about it. I think that's the sort of policing that we can do for social media spaces. I
2: love that. That's that's super helpful, that's super tangible. And, and I think that can be done. So thank you for that. That's very, very insightful and oh, helpful.
0: And the last thing I wanna say that I'm really hopeful about is that one of my students at Yale, I did a lecture on social media a couple of years ago. Um, I've done it actually the last two years, in 2018 and 2019. And I was so encouraged. Many of the students who came to the lecture went on to work for Facebook, Instagram, other things, right? One of my students emailed me recently and said, I'm working at Instagram right now. And I just want you to know, these are some of the things that we're doing. I read your book, Always On, you know, and he said, and so it's really encouraged me to think about, are we developing this digital space for human flourishing or not? And for me, this is every single person who's going to go into the tech industry, everybody who gets a degree in technology, if it were up to me, would take a great (laughs) moral philosophy class and they would, you know, a great class on ethics and they would be made to think about, am I making technology that contributes to human flourishing?
1: Yeah. That's actually the foundation. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the, you know, even the podcast is called Good is in the Details because it's this notion of what is the good life? I mean, I think that's how you and I started talking that we realized our discipline's, intersected there because I've noticed that no matter what I teach, I still, you know, if I'm teaching, it it can be intro, it can be the technology stuff. I've done existentialism. I always seem to come back to this question of how does this help us understand what it means to live life well? For some reason that has just been the central thing because I think it's missing. If I could, I wanted to ask something about, you know, your work at Yale, the class that you have, what was it called? It was The Good Life or The Work on... called Life Worth Living. The Life Worth Living. Okay. Yeah. And so I was thinking about Tolstoy's work in his confession when he is going through this incredible despair that he's just struck with the idea that everything that he's achieved really is meaningless because he's going to be dead. And so he's like, what am I doing all of this for? Who cares what I write? Who cares how much wealth I have? Who cares I have a family? It's as though he did the checklist of life, everything that you're told you're supposed to do. And then he realizes this is rather meaningless and so he goes to, he describes going to philosophy. He describes going to science to ask the question, even to religion, to ask, you know, what is the meaning of life? And he was only getting these very vague answers and he realized nobody could answer the question, of what is the meaning of my life? But he eventually says that after he let go of this, let's say, ivory towerish type of investigation, he came to the conclusion about the joy of life from, he says, the unlettered folk. That it was actually the common people, the people who every day just enjoyed their existence. It wasn't from the philosophers, it wasn't from the scientists. And I'm just thinking about this journey that you had about doing a Bible study in prison. What were you expecting going in, and then what did you get coming out?
0: It was about a year into everything that happened. So, three of my family members died in four weeks, and then About a year and a couple months later, my church was looking for more volunteers to come. And Bible study is a very loose term for what we were doing. We certainly opened the Bible and talked about it, but there were so much more that happened. And depending on how long the corrections officers would allow us to be in the room, sometimes it was an hour and a half, sometimes it was three hours. (laughs) We did everything from, you know, share stories to praying for each other to singing and dancing to meditation on and on. We did all kinds of things together. And so I signed up for this in the midst of profound grief. I all I can say is that there was a sort of nudge in my own spirit where I just felt like this was something I needed to do and it is something that as a Christian I would just say it felt like a nudge from God. I just felt like in my spirit, Angela, you should do this. You should surrender to this invitation. And so I did. And I it made no sense because I had not prayed myself really earnestly for a very long time at that point. I mean, for, for me, as someone who has like been a very faithful like person, like a person like who prayed faithfully most of my life and stuff like that, it just was so strange to just have these months where I just stopped praying or feeling like um yeah, God heard me anymore. And so it was strange to say yes to this invitation, and yet it just felt like I was something I was supposed to do. And then in the weeks, like I said at the beginning, um, a few weeks into it, I just began to realize that these women were going to help me to understand my family members' pain and the sources of their suicidal thinking and their, their use of substances to escape and numb pain. I began to understand the sources of their pain. I began to understand the relationship between pain and violence and uh, cycles of, you know, abuse and trauma in people's lives, how that, you know, often lands people in prison. And I just realized that these women were in their honesty about what they had been through, because so many of them began to open up, you know, over the months about what they had experienced, everything from domestic violence to child sexual abuse to neglect and many of them had been in foster care or lived in a group home or several of them in and out of foster you know different foster homes their whole life and I I just began to realize how this place that I was entering into every Wednesday night was not so much a prison as it was a sober living house Mm -hmm. um and, you know, and then a mental health hospital, it was yeah. being called a prison, but it was a place, a holding space for people experiencing significant mental health issues or, um, really just needing a place to sober up.
1: There's know. one really powerful. It's something that just really got to me where you're with the women and you ask them, they all have post-it notes and you ask, uh, what do you want God to do for you? And then they can write down on the notes and, um, You write, we often struggle to name our deepest needs. So the women write this down and I mean, you describe it so beautifully about like, you know, to get down and to pray about it. The floor is dirty. You get down on your knees anyway to pray after everybody's written down what it is that they want. And when you open your eyes, you realize everybody is praying and it's a really beautiful thing. I am stuck on this idea of why is it? Why do we struggle to name our deepest needs? I think that that's really true. Um I, I the re- maybe it stuck to me because I remember maybe it was about 3 years ago I was at a small dinner party it was around the holidays and the woman hosting the party um, next to our dinner plates she had a few small sheets of paper and a pen and then a little box and it was the end of the year and so she said write down what you want for the next year for the new year and I wrote down on the notes all the things are like my classic goals like i want to you know have published this much or do that like they were all the same and i remember i had one sheet of paper left and i was like i'm done and then she said to everyone at the table write whatever you want whatever it is that you want as if there were no obstacles write down what you want and i remember picking up the pen and being afraid to write what it was that i wanted i remember that and what i wrote down was that i would like to have a child that's what i wrote down and and I put that, I didn't tell anybody that I wrote that and I put that down, but everything else is going to make me tear up saying that because I thought that that was impossible. But it was the, when she said, it's like I had one note left and when she said, if you imagine that there were no obstacles. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, why was it so hard to name? That wasn't a need, but it was something that like I really wanted out of life. And I think that I was too afraid because I thought of the obstacles. It was a fear just to actually make any kind of a note even though it was to myself I was just admitting it to myself nobody else I wasn't waving the sheet around
2: so what did you did you save some of that magic paper because I would like to to write a couple (laughs) things down I mean that's pretty (laughs) odd I mean that's it's an amazing story it's the first time I've ever heard this so sorry I mean I just go on please well
1: I haven't told many people that in fact I only um I only told a couple of people that well now Now, our followers, now our listeners know that. But why, what is that struggle? Because I think that there is something very healing about what you described about being able to write that down. And then everyone is praying because it's like they're putting their intentions out there, they're being honest. And why is that so hard, in your opinion?
0: Yeah. And what was cool, too, is that, um, first of all, thank you so much, Gwen, for like sharing that. I do. I'm really moved as well. And I'm so, I celebrate with you. That this baby that you did not imagine could be possible is indeed here. Your baby well, yeah. is here. <laughs> right. She's screaming as we do. She'll,
2: she'll <laughs> be on, she'll be on in like two seconds, right? Is that, she will literally be here very, very soon. She's a part of the show.
0: Yeah. So um, I just think that's so beautiful and so good. And I think the part of the story, one other thing that we should tell maybe the listeners is that they did, they had the opportunity to share those needs aloud to say what do you want me? What do you want God to do for you? They, they shared that out loud with each other if they wanted to. And most of them did that evening. And, um, the thing is, is that to say that we need something or that we want something, or we want God to do something for us is to admit that we are needy. And so it's to be vulnerable. It's to be open about our longings, our hopes, yeah. um, and so, you know, I think that a lot of us want to, I think we lean towards, you know, I, I, I quote Seneca, right? Or some, somebody who quoted Seneca, we're not sure there's a footnote in there that's really funny. But um, okay. Seneca, if we cease to fear, um, if we cease to hope, we'll cease to fear. I think we, we think that. I think some of us, we don't really think it. Like if we actually put it out there, if we say it out loud, we're like, okay, I don't want to cease to hope. But I think we do have that feeling that if I just don't hope for this thing, then I will stop fearing that it will never come or something like that, you know? But then I also say in the book that theologian Jürgen Moltmann says that hope is the anticipation of joy. And so if we close off hope, we also close off joy.
1: Yeah, that's kind of...
2: Thank you for bringing up the Seneca part of your book. Uh, just really quick, because it really spoke to me. Sometimes I've I've flirted with stoicism. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm on the show is to learn more about philosophy and learn how I can I can use it, uh, it for my own personal life.
1: Uh, he bats his eyelashes or, at it.
2: I, yeah, I do. I don't <laughs> understand it. It doesn't give me the answers that I want. And that's why I hate it. Uh, th- that said, but you brought up Seneca, stoicism and everything. I thought maybe I was reading between the lines a little bit too much. I'm curious about what your feelings are on stoicism and the pursuit of joy. I think I understood what you were writing in the book, but just like now that you're actually on the show, I'd love to hear you tease that out a little more.
0: Well, I think the Stoics think that you're going to live a happy life, a good life, the life worth living if you're free from passion. So if you don't allow any emotion that comes to you to... You know, if you don't feed it, if you don't express it, and give yourself over to it, um, and if you don't long for particular, you know, any passions, then you're going to overall enjoy life more because, you know, the good life for them is the virtuous life. It's the life that's committed to leading your life well. And so they think, you know, you just focus on the way you lead your life and then you don't have to worry about any emotion that comes to you. Um, whatever it comes to you, you can let it go because life is the good life is not about giving yourself over to any emotion, good or bad, positive or negative, however you want to say it. It's about, Committing yourself to doing the right thing, and I just don't think he, <laughs> the Stoics are right. I, I disagree. I think that, for example, joy is such a powerful emotion that oh my goodness, if we are, and happiness is a powerful emotion, it's a good emotion. Righteous anger. If we don't have righteous anger, how do we create a world that is more just, that is more peaceful? You know, I think that you know i say in the book that it's important to befriend even emotions that people have labeled bad like fear and anger and really ask okay what is the wisdom in this emotion what is this emotion trying to teach me you know to be in touch with our emotions is to be in touch with i think a wise Aspect of ourselves. I think we want to make sure that our, as we're listening to that wisdom and as we express this emotion, and that we express it in a way that's generative and like, you know, for us and for other people and, you know, as generative as possible. So, because we can just create hurt in the world if we don't do that with particular emotions. But certainly, I just think that joy is, you know, for me, I define joy as the feeling we get when we feel connected to others. When we see and like recognize and feel connected to others or to something beautiful, to meaning, which is why you named this podcast, like it means something to you to help other people or to the truth. When we recognize these sorts of things and we feel connected to them and we think, this has something to do with my life. That feels really, really good. I'm connected with other people. That feels amazing, you know? And it's really simple things oftentimes that give us the most profound sense of joy, whether it's like a baby being born or music and we're like at a concert and we just realize everyone around us is caught up in this same thing. There's something really powerful about that. I mean, Brene Brown talks about collective joy, the power of collective joy and collective sorrow. Um, and I'm so I'm with her. I'm not with the Stoics.
2: I seriously think I'm tearing up right now because I've seriously flirted with Stoicism because I am uh, such an emotional person, and I know I, I felt like I've needed to quell it in order to be a better person. And I and I just can't. And so finally, I, when I was reading your book and you touched upon that, I was like, wait a minute. She's saying I'm a normal person? Not nah, can't be. I'm 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 not a normal person. And just to hear you say that. Yeah, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Yeah, no, no, you should get angry every once in a while. If somebody's doing something wrong, get angry about it and say something about it. Or you should feel happy, even though you might be sad the next day because something bad happens. Enjoy that happiness. Thank you. You have helped me tremendously today. So I hope that brings you some joy.
1: Mm, It does. You had started out by saying this idea of some purpose with the pain. And so I'm wondering now that you have produced this book, Do you feel like you've accomplished that? Was this part of the healing process? Was this part of the grieving process? And also, have you had some reactions from your family? Was it healing for them to read this or for anyone else who has a family member who has an addiction and how to be loving in that moment and supportive? What has happened since the publication of this book? I'm working on it.
0: Yeah, I, I feel very grateful that this has been one of the most cathartic experiences of my life. <laughs> it um it was incredibly helpful to me to just write all of this. One of my favorite people who was like written about Christian spirituality, her name is Rachel Hald Evans, and she died last year actually. But she had a mantra above her desk whenever she wrote and it said tell the truth. And um I really felt like in this book that that's what I did. I told the truth and I tried as honestly um, as I could and like, you know, to say, this is the story of my experience with grief and what it did to me in my life and how it caused me to ask more existential questions than any other time period of my life. But at the same time, in doing this journey and in meeting with people and being vulnerable with them Wednesday, after, Wednesday evening after Wednesday evening in interviewing other people who had lost loved ones to suicide or overdose or addiction, there was I found solidarity. I found healing. And basically, I think my hope, I have two hopes with this book. One is that it gives other people permission to feel whatever they're feeling and to tell their story, whatever story they have to like, you know, you don't have to be the person who doesn't want to acknowledge what you need or what you're going through. You really can share that with other people. And oftentimes, you will find healing in that honesty and in that sharing that's really surprising and beautiful. And the other thing that I really hoped from this book is that people would recognize that joy is... The kind of thing that like, so while many of us, I think we think that there needs to be this grand program for mitigating these really difficult things in our life, like the suicide rates and the opioid crisis and everything like that, that really at the sources of these things is pain. And if we create spaces for people to get at the things, to feel connected to others, to get at the meaning of life to talk about what's true, to connect with what is beautiful, to like focus on that, that it's incredible. Like it doesn't take, you know, I mean, there's, there's just so much that people are trying to do, I think, you know, or they get overwhelmed by this idea of despair and like what's happening in our country. And I think that in my own experience that if we would just strip it down and like, for me, it like what it took to heal my life, to help me get on the road to healing was faithfulness faithful presence in a room with other women, like week in and week out with like tons of honesty. And I just think that that, and that's, there's a lot of groups that are about that. So those are my big hopes for the book. But um, as far as my family, I am so grateful because all, you know, in telling my story, I implicated them and their stories, you know, And so all of them had to give me permission to tell our story, and they did, and it was just so incredible. They helped me to, you know, we did several rounds of edits and conversation and all this kind of stuff, all my sisters and um, my sister and, yeah, all my siblings that are in the book. I'm so grateful to them. And, you know, one of my sisters said to me the other day, my oldest sister, she said, I feel like in reading the book that you were able to articulate things that I felt, but I could not have articulated myself, which was an incredible gift. And so I think that like, I just feel their support. I feel their love. And I feel like a lot of them feel, you know, the family members who gave me consent for this book and have their real names in the book, they just said, this is such important work and we want to be a part of helping other people.
1: That's great. Angela, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This book is a gift. It really is. It's just. I'm always I've I'm always struck by people who have really been challenged in their faith and then they're honest about it and then they talk about how they return to it or explore it and this book is absolutely just a beautiful piece and thank you so much for coming on the show for talking about it for being our first theologian of the podcast <laughs> that's also very cool you're going to be our resident theologian if we come back with some god questions okay Oh yeah. Yeah. Please. Please <laughs> so yeah. thank you for that. Rudy, did you want to?
2: No, I, I just really wanted to I literally wanted to thank you again for your, your, your book, your, the vulnerability in it, the honesty in it. And, um, I, I meant what I said. I, I felt, felt, it felt good to, to read that having emotions is okay. I, <laughs> I really, I'm serious. I that that meant a lot. I struggle with my emotions, and one of the reasons why I have flirted with philosophy is because you know I'm trying to keep them under control. And that, and I, believe me, I should keep them under control. But uh, I it, it just, it was good to read that having them is okay. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate it.
0: Oh yeah, you're welcome. And um, I, it's so interesting. I'm actually like a big. I cry a lot when I am. I feel other people's, I think, experiences and pain really deeply. Like, I really empathize with people a lot. And so I, when other people cry, I'm really, it's hard to, I have a hard time not crying with them and being like genuinely moved by people's, you know, especially their really difficult experiences. And so, um, but then um, my uh, Miroslav Volf, who was my boss, um, an incredible systematic theologian at Yale there, he said, you know, I think that there are a lot, are people who have the gift of joy who are like generally, you know, just genuinely joyful people. And they just kind of have this joyful characteristic, you know, and he was just like, I think there are also people who have the gift of tears and they really are both gifts. Like that it's an important thing for the world to see. Like, you know, there are times when people actually need to know that what they're going through moves you too, because it helps them to realize, oh yeah, I'm not like, this is not weird for me to like think that this is sad or hard. You know, like I'm not being uh, delusional here that what's happening actually is very painful and very hard. And empathy just goes such a long way, I think, especially in the kind of moment that we find ourselves in right now. Thank you so much to both of you for reading The Gravity of Joy. Um, Thank you for reading my story and my family's story and for honoring it today with your questions and your time.
1: And uh, where can, where can people find you if they have questions from this podcast or how can people get in touch with you?
0: Yes. Um, I have a website, AngelaGorell.com. So that's dot lcom So AngelaGorell.com. I am a professor at Baylor University, so you can easily Google Angela Gorell and you can find me uh, my email and um, all that stuff. So I would, I welcome people to contact me there. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and we're going to have to – now, Rudy, we need to read Always On. Now we need to read – now we need to read that and then do another pod with her.
2: We really should. I am going to read it and because I, I do think it's a huge topic. I do think that the issue of social media and being always on uh, is, is something that me as a parent needs to be fully aware of because I don't think social media is going anywhere. I, I need to learn how to live with it and properly use it in order to help my children with it. So I, I would love that. I think okay. I want think, I to think we'll be better that. at it.
1: Angela, will you come back to us? Yeah, okay. I was like, you and I can set this up, Rudy, but we need to make sure the guest is still interested. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Well, Angela, thank you so much. And just loved talking to you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about this episode or any other episodes, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. You can support the show at patreon.com slash good is in the details. And you can reach out on Instagram. Good is in the details pod. Okay. I hope you're still wearing your masks, socially distanced, taking care of each other. And until next time, bye.